Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I'm your host, Mark Shapiro. Before we get to today's episode, first, a thank you to our sponsors. First off, thank you to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode of Explore the Space. Creighton University believes in equipping physicians for success in the exam room, the operating room, and the boardroom. If you want to increase your business acumen, deepen your leadership knowledge, and earn your seat at the table, Creighton's healthcare executive education is for you. Specifically tailored to busy physicians, our hybrid programs blend the richness of on-campus residencies with the flexibility of online learning. Earn a Creighton University Executive MBA degree in 18 months or complete the non-degree Executive Fellowship in six months. Visit www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E to learn more. Thank you also to the Clinician Experience Project by Practicing Excellence for sponsoring this episode. The Clinician Experience Project by Practicing Excellence provides coaching and development solutions for clinicians, leaders, and teams working in some of the nation's largest hospitals and healthcare systems. As a leading provider of clinician-designed content, the Clinician Experience Project team partners with clients to deploy skill-building programs that map directly to organizational goals, delivering measurable enterprise-wide results. To learn more about how your organization can improve patient and organizational outcomes, visit www.practicingexcellence.com. I am delighted to have two guests for this episode of Explore the Space podcast. Dr. Risa Lewis is a professor of emergency medicine and radiology, as well as the director of the point of care ultrasound division at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. And she is also the voice of the Visible Voices podcast. And Dr. Adara Landry is an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Harvard Medical School and assistant residency director for the Harvard Affiliated Emergency Medicine Residency Programs. Dr. Landry and Dr. Lewis join me to discuss a superb paper that they co-authored on what efficient mentorship can look like. And of course, we took this paper and we ran with it. This was a springboard into a discussion of how we can all work smarter, why this idea of work-life balance is a myth, as well as their shared love of -of point-of-care ultrasound and how point-of-care ultrasound can change the physician-patient dynamic and how it can also, of course, make us more efficient. I think you're going to really enjoy hearing both of them. There's also a a note of real collaborative wisdom that just winds its way through the conversation. These two are are off to an extraordinary start, and I am really excited to see what they continue to create together. Before we get to the conversation, please just want to remind everyone to check out the archive of Explore the Space podcast, www.explorethespaceshow.com. You can email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. You can find me on social media. I'm on Twitter at ETS show, and you can find Explore the Space wherever you like to download your shows on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify, wherever you like to download them, please do subscribe and please leave us that rating and review. It really helps the show out. And if you have the opportunity, please do send Explore the Space to your friends and colleagues. That word of mouth is just a huge driver of how we can continue to spread the show and all of the wonderful guests that we've had on. Speaking of wonderful guests. Three-person shows are fun. Having two guests on is a blast. And Dr. Lewis and Dr. Landry were just tremendous. I think you're going to really enjoy listening to them. So without further ado, Dr. Risa Lewis and Dr. Adara Landry. Risa and Adara, welcome to Explore the Space podcast. I'm, I'm delighted you're here. I love the way this came about. 
I love that you pitched this to me. I love that we've put it all together. I love that we've got a three-person show. Delighted to have you both. Adara, thank you. Risa, thank you. Thanks for having us, Mark. We are so appreciative. Thank you. So there's a term that I learned in medical school, and I'm going to ask if you guys learned the same term. I remember when I learned it. I remember who taught it to me. Work smarter, not harder. Risa, did you ever learn the term work smarter, not harder when you were in medical school or at any point in your life? I definitely learned it. I don't think it was medical school. And I think I learned it from friends that are not in healthcare because I think we could have a whole conversation about why in healthcare often we don't work smarter. Right. Uh, we just work harder. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? Adara, when you hear work smarter, not harder, what pops to mind for you? A similar thought. I mean, we're so inefficient in medicine. <laughs> There's so much redundancy and and things that could be highly streamlined that we just fail to do on a daily basis. So I don't think of medicine. I probably think of my friends who are in tech and finance yeah. and learned those skills probably more than they learned skills about taking care of humanity and being compassionate and those sorts of things that we learn in medical school. It's funny because I remember where I learned it. I was in the radiology room in Ben Taub Hospital in Houston when I was a medical student and the room itself was utter chaos, right? I mean, stuff everywhere and gear all over the place and it's dark and everyone's tired and it's just, it's, it was total chaos. It was all friction. It was very hard in that environment to think, how do we ever work smart? Because right now we're just working hard. And that really stuck with me. And so this idea that in medicine, I, I laughed when you said that, Adair, because we're, we, are, we are extraordinarily inefficient. You are both busy clinical physicians. You're both teachers and mentors and coaches and instructors and experts in lots of different things. You also spend your time in a high friction, high stress environment, the emergency department. Risa, when you think about the idea of efficiency and let's let's get into it in medicine in particular where is the low-hanging fruit for us as individuals to be more efficient to work smarter not harder it, it's a fantastic question and it's an important question because i actually believe that everything starts with the self and the more you can take care of yourself the better you are able to take care of others. And that others means people in your family. That means people in your friendship group. And that means patients. That means your teams. If you're, you lead a healthcare team in the hospital. And so I think actually being efficient and, and, and being smarter, working smarter means taking care of yourself and that taking care of yourself does mean time management. And that does mean people management. And Adara and I actually are huge fans of HBR, the Harvard Business Review, because a lot of their articles focus just on that organizational behavior and management, people management, culture management, culture change uh, and leadership. And if you think about it, I mean, at the root of what we learn in medical school is a lot of information that we end up not using in our careers later on. <laughs> that in itself is inefficient. We're all so thinking think, about the Krebs cycle right now. Right. right. And so I think the hard part is we're really conditioned to accept these inefficiencies and no one really teaches us how to pick out a good opportunity, excuse me, a great opportunity. And so we settle for things that are just average or good. And we're not really striving to be curators of opportunities and experiences and to be incredibly selective. So what ends up happening is that we settle for things that are suboptimal. 
And because of that, we just sort of stay in the status quo. We're not really pushing ourselves to the next level that I often see that. And, and I think that's really what keeps medicine from being so far behind other spaces that are constantly innovating, constantly changing like tech finance is because we're so used to just being OK with good. So then, Adara, where did you find would, the dynamics and the skills to a see that and then b move beyond it? Because right now. I agree with you. We're not coaching that skill. We're not expecting that skill. We're just tolerating the friction. What levers did you pull that gave you that sort of next level strategic view? Turning 35. I think I was, you know, I was looking at my career and, and where all I had been over the last year or so. I th- And I think I've, I've done okay, right? I'm, I'm a mother. Um, I'm happily married. I'm at a great institution, but I still felt like a lot of the activities I had taken part of hadn't really pushed me and they weren't um, so rare or so unique or or so um, defining that I felt like I was going for those great experiences. And And so I felt like I was kind of circling the drain a bit and just sort of doing the same thing over and over again. And I wasn't really being efficient with my time, right? We have a fixed amount of time in this career. And I started looking for mentors, really amazing mentors like Risa and other folks who have really achieved great levels of success. And I asked them, you know, how did you really move yourself from where you were, let's say five years ago to where you are now? And a lot of them talked about this idea of really picking out career opportunities that are quite unique, that are really going to push you, that are going to allow you to work with other folks who maybe you've never networked with before. And just getting that hearing that conversation and getting that experience firsthand from, from folks who were way beyond where I was allowed me to look at everything that I had on my plate and realize, oh my, I have been just settling for, for good and not really striving for great. So you had to put yourself outside and try to connect with someone to, to start that process. So then for you, Risa, when you're on the receiving end of a, of a, of a ping like that, you get that email or a phone call or you meet at a conference right? all of the usual dynamics, I guess, pre-COVID, where we may have been able to meet and interact and and build relationships. What is it like for you on that other side to be on that receiving end with a question like that? How does a question like that land for you? Well, first of all, it's a huge compliment when anybody wants to speak with you and when anybody comes to you with focused questions about life, career, personal, professional. And just to add a little bit to what Adara just shared, yes, this is a about opportunity and, you know, working smarter in terms of professional. But going back to what I I was saying with everything starts with the self, like in medicine, we're not taught to sleep well and sleep efficiency. (laughs) No, we're not not taught to eat well and eat efficiently, efficiently. So the age at which Adara is realizing this is the age at which you're like, wait a minute, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep not sleeping. I can't keep not eating well. I'm supposed to be this beacon of health, but look at me and I don't feel great. And so I do think that at some point people have this aha moment where like something's got to change and that something is those habits that I just described. Moreover, it's those habits that you want to see in other people. And if we specifically focus on academic medicine, we don't see a lot of of that. And a lot of the traditions and a lot of what gets you ahead doesn't actually promote that longevity and doesn't promote that health. So to your direct question, Mark, it's a huge compliment. 
And also you have a conversation and Adair and I have spoken about this on other occasions. You can't just force it. It, it, There is this organic aspect to a connection with a person and you see where that connection goes. And, you know, vis-a-vis the article that, that we wrote together, that connection can be short term. It can be long term. It can be a friendship. It can be a coaching situation. It can be a mentorship situation. It can be a sponsorship situation and it can be a Venn diagram of all of those. It does feel like you both have a natural rapport, even though this is our first conversation as three people conversing. Just the way the article read and the way you both kind of connected around reaching out to me, there's clearly that sense of a natural rapport there. I will say, though, you did call out that these habits of you know being efficient, being healthy, starting with self in the framework of academic medicine. As a physician who is not in an academic practice, I'm not affiliated with a university or anything like that. It ain't any better. I promise you, we we have the exact same problems. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. it's no different. The challenges might be a little bit different, but the ideas of being on call and not eating right and skipping meals and basic management of activities of daily living, you know, hydration and these sorts of things. It is a struggle across the board in our profession. And that's why I think for me, at least this article stood out when you sent it to me. The thing I love the most about it is the idea of energy conservation not draining energy, fuel efficiency, right? I loved it because it made think, you know, the conversations on Explore the Space we've had around climate change come up. How do we get efficient in all these things we do? Because preservation and mitigation is so important. Adara, for you, a little earlier in your career, you're looking at a longer horizon. How would you say as a priority, all in, life, profession, family, all of it, Energy conservation and efficiency, how high on your priority list is that? Right now it's at the top and, top. and, and it's, yeah. and, yep, yep. And it spreads throughout. What I have discovered, I think because of this pandemic is that I had been striving for work-life balance. This idea that I can have two completely different domains, my personal life, my professional life, and they can sort of exist, coexist in harmony. And, and I just have to keep working towards that perfect place. But I've realized that that it just doesn't exist. I don't believe that work-life balance truly exists. What, what I think we can strive for is self-compassion and really trying to take care of ourselves and recognize boundaries and realizing that time is so important. And I had been spending it in a way that I think was not compassionate to myself. And I've been pushing myself to take on things at home or at work, right? When the pandemic happened, I had two toddlers at home and I was still doing all of my academic work, plus trying to just to figure out, are we all going to die? I mean, it was really stressful. And that's actually when this article was born, was in the beginning of the pandemic, when three amazing medical students had reached out to me independently and asked for me to meet with them one-on-one for whatever, I think they asked for like 45 minutes or an hour of my time. And I thought to myself, I, I don't have three hours this week or even next week to meet with in, them individually. And so it just casually came to me. Maybe I can combine these these students together into an hour and maybe they're going to actually have a lot of the same problems. Because if they went through the same institution I went through as far as just medical school training, and this has not changed as far as how we are um, sort of poorly prepared for a field in medicine, they probably are going to have a lot of the same questions. And so bringing them together was great for them to sort of normalize their issues, but also it was very compassionate to myself and my schedule. So I thought that there was a lot of mutual benefit 
from just thinking about a way that I can be efficient with my time that helps others, but also helps myself. I I would love to just be able to shake your hand right now because the way you stated that just resonates deeply. The idea of work-life balance I'll be completely honest. Uh, you know, I'm in the middle of my career. I feel like I'm in my prime. I'm 44 years old. I feel like it's this idea of work-life balance. Honestly, it feels like mythology. It feels like at this point, it feels like admin talk for something that doesn't actually exist. And then we just hammer ourselves because we don't have this perception that we have that we're in balance somehow. And so the way you have helped to reframe that, I think is really brilliant. And so that is awesome. And I appreciate it for you, Risa, when you... You've heard the words work-life balance for a while. You've been in your career for a while. When you think about this idea of it being a reality, something to strive for, or something that we now need to reframe, how would you categorize this idea of finding that right space? One thing I really love is that we're looking to rephrase this and no longer use that terminology. I think none of us ever felt really good about that terminology Uh, because it seemed this unachievable goal. And certainly in training, I heard it all the time, work-life balance, work-life balance, and you're sort of looking for these examples. And I will go back to this whole concept of taking care of self and time. I remember I was in Boston in training and there's a bon pen and (laughs) went on shift. If you wanted to eat something, and this is what I did. I sped walk to the Aubon Pen, which is right in the lobby of the hospital. Uh, I would get a small coffee. I would get a bagel. By the time I had sped walk back, the bagel was inhaled. And then I had my small coffee uh, for the rest of the shift. And it was one on one of those speed walking missions that my attending joined me. And this attending is still to this day, one of my mentors, one of my good friends, and someone who I, I really think actually has been one of my sole allies throughout medicine and, and career development. And he said to me, Risa, there's one thing you have. There's one thing you have. And it was a little bit of like, guess what I'm thinking? Guess what I'm thinking? I was like, oh my gosh, what do we have? What do we have? What do we have? Um, and he said, time, time. And so that obviously has stuck with me and uh, resonated. And it, it goes back to sort of how do you spend your time? With whom do you spend your time? How much of your time is sleeping? How much of your time is eating? Uh, what are you eating? And vis-a-vis the article and professional development and taking care of yourself professionally, how do you spend your time in terms of your meetings, in terms of your sharings, and in terms of your mentorship? And One of the reasons why I feel really good about this piece is it just makes sense. Now, I'll say Adara and I have gotten some pushback. A lot of people have been like, that's great, but should you be rushing through this? Should you be thinking about this in terms of efficiency? And so we've spent a little bit of time explaining the thought process and explaining about about why actually it does make sense. uh, And it is a choice towards health and self-preservation. I think that calling out the concept of time is fantastic and not to sound trite it's timely and the reason i said when i read the article i felt like that was the subtext in it so i feel kind of validated in the way i interpreted your article that this that how we're managing our own time and controlling our own time is of critical importance but i also remember stretches in my in my training and as an attending too of just sort of looking around being like i can't believe we do it this way this is so dumb whether it's racing to the cafeteria or all of the various inefficiencies or that we're still using fax machines or whatever the case may be, 
Just how are we how are we still in this place? And not only that, that we think it's somehow macho or cool or it makes us stand apart in some way, when in reality, it, it's it's just it's just another you know pile of grains of sand on the sandpaper that's kind of grinding all of us up. We get these messages. You know, Adara has gotten these messages. I've gotten these messages. You've gotten these messages, Mark. Say yes. Say yes. Say yes. (laughs) Don't say no. Don't (laughs) say no. Don't say no. You can't say yes to everything. You can't do everything. And so, you know, when you hit that wall, you're like, wait a minute. I'm Uh, really glad that you called that out because Adara, I'm going to ask you this. One of the things that's not in the article, and I was waiting for it, was when is it okay to say to someone who is looking to you to be a mentor, right? Adair, you got three emails from three different medical students at the same time. When and in what context is it okay to say no? We've talked about the concept of saying no on the podcast uh, several different times. I don't think many of us are very good at it. Some better than others. I'm learning. When is it okay to say, look, I've got your email. I appreciate it. My answer is no. And here's why. Where where does that fit into the puzzle? Because it's not easy. I'll start by saying that I, I do it quite often, actually. I did it today. And, and to me, it's easy to figure out when to say yes. And I have three sort of criteria that I use to decide if this is a great pairing. The first is if our energy level matches. And it doesn't have to match, I guess, in, this, in the sense that it's the exact same, but I like it to be complementary. So for instance, if I'm looking for a mentor, I like someone who is very motivated, quick thinking. They can give me a list of options. They're um, on their on their toes, and 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 I, I love that energy. That works a lot better than someone who might be very 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 casual, indecisive. It'd be really hard for me to find uh, some sort of sense of security in that relationship. So the energy needs to feel right for me to say yes to someone. The other thing is there there needs to be a very minimal knowledge gap. So I don't think that you have to be an expert in what someone is seeking, but you have to be quite familiar. And in this case today, someone was asking me about, um, you know, being a a graduate from a foreign medical school and the match process and those sorts of things. I've never experienced that primarily or even secondarily. I I don't know really a lot of folks who have done it firsthand. And so because of it, I'm very unfamiliar with the topic. and and, And I thought that I wouldn't be a good fit for this person. And so to me, there was a very clear knowledge gap that I wouldn't really be able to solve. So for that area of, of need that they had, which was help me get through this process as a foreign grad, I wasn't able to help. So it was clear to me that I, I'm going to stop right there. But the third thing, just in case there is not a knowledge gap, is time and the schedule. So being able to really make space and time for someone on your schedule. If if you have all three, that's great. But if I think if you're lacking one, it's a sign to me that this relationship is at risk for failing. And the way you can decline a, um, you know, a request is to obviously thank them for the, the recognition that they are looking to you for guidance. Of course, it's a, it's a huge compliment. Reese is right. But also tell them what you're, you are helpful with. If it's, you know, a matter of, you know, I, I can't help you in this area, but I can help you in this way, or I'm not busy. I'm busy right now, but I can help you in a few months. I, just sort of giving that potential um, in area of entry later on. But then the third thing is offering someone else they can reach out to. So not completely leaving them hanging, but to say, even though I'm not a great match for you, I think these three people should be. And so you can reach out to them and mention to them that I recommended you to you know, contact them. And, and this way, they don't feel like they've been completely abandoned. The door is still open for them to come back to you. And you feel great because you were able to you know, protect yourself a bit. So 
that's my general strategy, but, but I am more comfortable saying no now because I get a lot of requests via Twitter, but I always make sure that I try to keep them set up for someone else who can support them. That's a really nice structure. And I think it would be something that anyone could pluck out of this conversation and lay into their own sort of workflow. Risa, I'm curious, there's a skill set that I know both of you have that you're both proper experts in. And if I was looking for a mentor in it, I would, you'd be getting like DMs or emails from me like, Hey, I, I could use some help in this. You are both experts in point of care ultrasound. You're both you know, up there in using this extraordinary technology. I remember first hearing about it as a medical student and being super excited about it. And I still haven't seen it widely deployed. And I finished residency in 06. Where do you sit in your enthusiasm for that one-on-one opportunity to grow the field of point of care ultrasound, whether it's in the emergency department or on the wards or in the ICU? And then again, being efficient, what is the right way to grow and propagate it, acknowledging that it has tremendous clinical importance? It's a great question, Mark. You're full of great questions. (laughs) Thank you. Appreciate it. (laughs) Okay. You know, my my journey and my story with point of care ultrasound, I'm not going to bring you in the audience through the whole thing today. But just in brief, when I finished residency in 2001, that same mentor friend who sat with me at Aubon Penn actually said to me, Risa Lewis, why are you going to go do a fellowship in ultrasound? Ultrasound has not gone anywhere and it's not going to go anywhere. And therein lies the first and only time I ever did not listen to this friend. And he has since come full circle and said to me, Risa, I was wrong. I was completely wrong because 2000 to 2002, which was the period where I was deciding to do a fellowship and then did the fellowship all of a sudden within emergency medicine, point of care ultrasound took off. It took off and it was a timing thing. And what had really convinced me to pursue it as a specialty within a specialty is there were three people that I knew when I was in training that somehow were using this technology, using this tool at the bedside to provide better patient care. So I've always been motivated to provide better patient care. And these were three clinicians who I trusted, who I saw provide good patient care and whose heart were in the right place. And the three places that they used this was number one, rural medicine in the United States, i.e. limited resources. Number two, global health, both disaster circumstances as well as lower resourced countries and areas. And number three, county hospitals. And if you look at where emergency medicine and ultrasound have really taken off, where they really started, it was emergency departments that had fewer, quote, resources. They weren't the ones that had 24-7 ultrasound or an in-house radiologist. So it seemed right for those reasons. I started uh, in New York City. I was the first fellow at St. Luke's Roosevelt. Uh, At the time, they were a part of Columbia. Now they're a part of the Mount Sinai system. And I stayed there for 12 years and really uh, helped build a division. And we ran a fellowship. We had a resident rotation. We got a little bit of a dabble in terms of medical student. And that's also where I started traveling the world. And it wasn't, you know, for this medical voyeurism that some people talk about. It was really to help teach ultrasound to people and to places who had that limit in resources, who perhaps um, the goal is not for me to have to go back and them to need me, but to create something sustainable so that they can provide better patient care in their home countries, in their uh, home hospitals, et cetera. And 
it's a community that really, really grew up together. We all know each other um, within emergency medicine. And of course, it's not the sole ownership of emergency medicine by any means. And in fact, many specialties have been using ultrasound much longer than emergency medicine. Perhaps it hasn't been as developed. Perhaps their college and their societies don't have policy statements, but really emergency medicine and ultrasound grew up together. And now there's sort of a very strong place in most hospitals uh, of point of care ultrasound. To your specific question, most of us that have been doing this now five years, 10 years, where we want to place our attention and energy changes. So, yes, at the beginning, there's a lot of one on one teaching. There's a lot of setting up courses. There's a lot of, you know, uh, working to make sure the machines work and all that other stuff. But what we've seen and actually we published a survey study on this is many people that do a fellowship in point of care ultrasound within emergency medicine end up using that as a launching point. That launching point may be resident education, medical education. That launching point may be global health and doing uh, work outside of the United States. That launching point may be operations and administration because some people may not buy this, but I would say, I would posit, and I want to use the word posit right there, that in emergency ultrasound divisions. You made they, me laugh. That was good. I like that. <laughs> we, we, we like words. We like words. Yeah, um, no, for sure. No, we, we run small departments, meaning there is education, there's clinical excellence, there's research, and there's administration. We QA studies. We run workflows. We intersect with many people in the hospital from biomed to operations to, you know, fill in the blank. And so I say that because some people that do ultrasound then go on to actually be department chairs or do be chief operation officers. The point being ultrasound provides a skill and provides a learning curriculum that can be applied more than just staying within an ultrasound division. For you, Adara, how steeped in the point of care ultrasound piece are you in your day-to-day clinical world? And then circling back to kind of the central theme of our conversation, obviously the piece that you wrote, do you find that it is a tool that drives efficiency? Does it move things at a faster tempo? Does it make the shift a little more satisfying? Does it free up time for other aspects of clinical care or work when you're on duty? How, how does that sort of milieu fit for you as your career continues to mature? So I'll start from the beginning, which was that when I interviewed for fellowship here at the Brigham, I actually told the fellowship director that I see ultrasound more as a launch pad for me than a destination. And I really wanted to use it as an introductory experience for technology, for innovation and for education. And actually, while I was getting my fellowship, I was getting a master's in education at the same time. Many of my courses were based off of the business mindset and um, creating companies or endeavors related to education, actually. Um, So it really wasn't even medical education related at all. And so I used ultrasound a lot for my class projects and assignments as a way of saying we can use technology, innovation and education within medicine and uh, really help not just the clinical space in the emergency room, but just all together. I would say one thing that I've appreciated with ultrasound and and I think The reason why it's becoming more efficient is actually because it's a very collaborative field. It's not just with MDs. You're also working with um, sonologists. You're working with engineers. You're working with designers. Both Reese and I have experience working in ultrasound um, industry. And to me, I see that speed that we're lacking 
in the hospital setting where things can really change, where, where things can be pitched and pivoted and launched within weeks and months. Whereas if we were working in the hospital environment, it would be much, much, much less efficient. And so I think the reason why we're able to have access to these machines that are you know, in our pockets at this point is a lot because it's not dependent on just the physicians to create these new products, but it's an incredibly collaborative space where we're using folks from the business world. And like I said, engineering and design, and I think they're just used to moving faster and they're used to less red tape and, and iterating quickly. And that has really helped create a much more streamlined process so that when it comes to scanning someone, you're not really having to rely on the radiology suite or these huge machines that are heavy to push. Now you have something that is much more convenient and efficient on a daily basis. In the space of collaboration, I'll put one more person in there. And I know that you both, this is part of what you do. And I, I want to ask you both the same question. Does it change the physician patient relationship? Do you have the opportunity or do the patients ask, Hey, can I see that? What do you, what is that? What do you see? Walk me through what you're looking at. Do you, do you fold that into the way that you talk, educate, collaborate with the patients that you're taking care of? Risa, I want to ask you first, but Adara, I'm going to ask you the same question. The short of it is yes. And there have been a few studies that look at sort of that dynamic of increasing frequency at the bedside, speaking to the patient at the bedside. There's a dynamic and there's a neuropathic pathway, not neuropathic, but there's a neurologic pathway that connects you, your brain, your hand, the probe, the probe to the patient's skin. And of course, there's the liquid medium of the gel and you have your glove on. But the bottom line is that concept of touch and connection. There's something that happens in terms of stimulating this understanding and this empathy with the patient. And there's this connection you develop with the patient in terms of the discussion, the education. Yes, absolutely. Showing them what's on the screen. And I haven't seen this study done yet. But something happens in terms of the connection you have with the patient. And I think there's a trust. I think there is a an understanding. And I think that something happens where the patient feels you're doing more for them. And in fact, there is a study that came out of Mass General and the group that that Adair is a part of that talks about patients, uh, whether they would want to have an ultrasound done in the emergency department at their next emergency department visit, would they prefer to be transported outside the emergency department to the radiology suite? And the findings of the study essentially said there was large satisfaction by patients that had an examination performed on them. Yes, they would want one when they came back again, if they had to come back again to the emergency department and no, they would prefer to not be transported out to the radiology suite. It's absolutely fascinating. So Adara, then the same question to you, how has mm -hmm. the use of ultrasound changed, impacted? What are your reflections on the patient physician relationship as you're using this technology? Well, I think from the patient's perspective, and I've been a patient before um, in an emergency room, we're always wondering, or they're always wondering what's taking so long, right? From their <laughs> yeah, perspective, yeah, everything yeah. seems so inefficient. Your yeah. doctor's not doing anything. They're over there at the computer, just chatting, looking at something online. So that whole gap of what they're perceiving and what's actually happening behind the scenes is really, really wide. And I think what ultrasound does is it narrows that gap just a bit because you're able to bring something to them and involve them and sort of 
allow them to be included in this discussion with, you know, your resident or with a nurse or even just the two of you on what you're finding and what you're seeing and what this means and what we're going to do next. So I think in some ways it's an it's evidence that we're actually working and we're not completely inefficient for our patients. But as Risa mentioned, it gives a lot of space for education. And I think patients really do want to feel empowered and do want to feel, I mean, not everyone, but they do want to feel like they know what's going on with their bodies. And so many people will ask questions like, what is that? Show me, you know, like show me what you're looking at. What does this mean? And so I think it gives a lot of reassurance to patients that the doctors are capable and smart and working, but also willing to, to teach and, and spend time at the bedside. The thing that stands out for me in the context of this article and the fact that we're doing a three person interview is I love the way you both take the same question, reflect off of each other, provide unique answers and continue to build on the topic. And I felt that sort of same dynamic happens. And, and as you both said, right, part of this idea of relationship building is finding someone where you have that right matchup. So it begs the question. What is next for Adara and Risa? Where is the next collaboration? What are you guys working on next? Because obviously I don't get to see the, the, the text threads that you all have, but I know they exist. What's cooking? What's next? I think we want to continue writing. You know, writing for HBR was, is very different than writing for academia, medical academia. And that we have to be very particular. I, I have noticed that we've had to be very particular with our words and things have to be explicitly clear. But we don't necessarily need the same level of evidence and support that you might need, let's say, for a major academic medical journal where you have to cite every possible study that's related to this one sentence. Um, so a lot of it is couched on our own experience and, and anecdotes, but other mediums or mediums of like, you know, like lay press articles and those sorts of things. It's a very different writing style and it's incredibly new to me. And so I think um, trying to really master this new language and, and new context of, of communicating these ideas that we deal with in medicine, but are probably ap applicable to the general wider audience is something that I would like to continue pursuing. Risa, when you think about next, all right, you've already moved through a lot of next, but when you think about your work with Adara, what do you want to see happen next? So part of the chemistry and part of the connection that we share is, and what you've sensed is we both believe in the importance of words. Uh, we believe in the importance of spoken word and written word. And I learned this a long time ago. Words and getting things published is a currency. It's a currency in medicine and academic medicine, but also outside. And it's not to, you know, <laughs> if uh, we can go on this whole like currency analogy. But what I'll say is the motivation is not to acquire a lot of currency. The motivation is actually to speak our truth to get our stories out there, because I think we've both learned that if we've had this experience and other people are having this experience and on the specific thread of mentoring, writing this one article has motivated a few others. So Twitter, like we, we actually have a piece out on uh, mentorship can be found on Twitter. And I have wanted to explore something that you pointed to and asked about, Mark, what happens when you don't connect or what happens when a mentorship relationship just isn't working? Um, you know, sort of what does that breakup look like? Or, you know, one of the sort of um, more edgy topics is what happens when someone seems to want to be your mentor, but actually they have uh, an alter ulterior motive, um, which may not be so good for you as the mentee. I think this is great. And I think that 
the next thing that you both do together is going to be awesome. And you have to promise you'll send it to me, whatever it is, so that in the swirl of content that's out there, it's easy to miss things inadvertently. So you, you have to just go ahead and promise to send it to me. And also for those who then want to follow and engage with what you're doing, how do people find you on social media? How do they reach out to you, Adara? How about you? And then Risa? I'm very available on Twitter. Um, I love to actually do a lot of my mentoring there. So feel free to reach out to me using my Twitter handle, which I assume you'll put on the podcast website, but it's Adara Landry MD. Um, feel free to reach out to me. It's my happy space. So I'm happy to connect. That's great. How about for you, Risa? So same Twitter's great at Risa E. Lewis, middle initial E. And also I have a podcast that I launched during 2020, the pandemic, and I welcome sort of feedback, listening and uh, people to follow me there. We will have links to visible voices. We'll have links to both of your Twitter feeds. We will certainly have a link to your article in Harvard Business Review. This was so much fun. I really appreciate yeah, you both coming you. on. The three-person conversations are a blast. Adara, thank you. Risa, thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. Thank this was you. great. My thanks once again to Dr. Lewis and Dr. Landry for joining me on this episode of Explore the Space podcast. Definitely check them both out on Twitter and definitely follow the Visible Voices podcast. There are links in the show notes. Thank you to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Learn more about Creighton's Executive MBA and Executive Fellowship programs at www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E. Thank you also to the Clinician Experience Project by Practicing Excellence for sponsoring this episode. The Clinician Experience Project from Practicing Excellence provides enterprise-wide healthcare coaching and development solutions for clinicians, leaders, and teams to improve patient connection, team collaboration, and leadership effectiveness. Organizations see significant results when participants spend a mere five minutes per week building skills through app-delivered programs. To learn more, visit www.practicingexcellence.com. And finally, my thanks to you for listening to this episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. We will be back soon with more great content. Definitely check out the archive of the show, www.explorethespaceshow.com. Hit me on social media, Twitter at ETS Show. Email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. And definitely leave us that rating and a review wherever you like to download your shows and definitely hit subscribe as well. We will be back soon with more great content. Continue to wear your masks, maintain physical distancing, keep your hands washed, take care of yourselves, and we will see you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.